This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Clay Hausman. Clay is the CMO of Octana, a company that uses AI to provide decision support to life science sales and marketing teams. Clay is also a principal at Treatment, a marketing consultancy that uses the methods of screenwriters to help brands build and tell their stories. In this interview, Clay tells us how marketing is like screenwriting and how marketers can use tips from screenwriting to tell better stories and create more effective marketing. He also talks about his background, how he got into marketing, the future of AI in marketing, and much more. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. An in-studio special guest. Clay, what's going on? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? It's a beautiful day in Palo Alto, and I have no complaints because we have a fun day of storytelling talk here on Marketing Trends. We love stories here at Mission, and who better to have on? And you. Wow, Ian, you, you got very dramatic on me all of a sudden. Is that is that for my benefit or is that your natural your natural style? It's there? a it's a bit of both. Right. Um today we're gonna talk about the future of artificial intelligence and marketing, about how to tell stories and not sell sheets, and a bunch of other stuff that you've either written about, talked about, or spoken about on other areas. But first, how'd you get into marketing? Uh, I went to school for broadcast journalism. That was what I thought I was meant to do, wanted to do badly. And then uh, in college, while majoring in broadcast journalism, I realized that maybe it was the storytelling part that I liked a lot and not the nomadic, extremely underpaid, uh, travel around the world, get promoted by market. Yeah, there were parts of it that were that were a little bit tough. And I thought, well, maybe I can do the storytelling part of it, but from the corporate side. So I started my career in PR and then that took me into other parts of marketing. And you did some really interesting stints at a lot of companies that have a lot of different things going on. You did a stint at Ogilvy, you were at Plantronics, kind of been in around the startup world a little bit. Tell me what it was like to kind of bounce around to different areas, different markets, different things in that time. So starting on the agency side was a great exposure to a lot of different industries and a lot of different types of businesses. I would recommend it to a lot of people starting out, coming out of college, especially if you have a a specific path you know you want to go down, then you probably don't need to. I was more of the, okay, I'm not doing broadcast journalism. I want to do the corporate side of storytelling, but what industry, what facet of marketing, how do I want to plug into that? And you just get exposed to so much. So so that was great experience. I started in New York and then moved out to San Francisco in the late 90s. So a pretty crazy time out yeah. here with the dot-com boom and bubble and all of that. 
And but I realized after about 12, 13 years on the agency side that the more senior you got on the agency side, a lot of times the further away from the client work and the problem solving, it became much more of an operational management role, at least my role did. And I wanted to get back into like really solving problems with peers and with customers. So that's where I decided to look at the in-house side of the track. And then I made the move into Plantronics because there was an opportunity to go work at Plantronics. And that still gave me the exposure of there was some B2B, there was some B2C, there were different product lines. So there was variety, but you know, you, you lost the little bit of the mercenary nature of agencies and you got to all work together as a team on something. So do you think that that shift into or away from the agency side and going into like kind of the ownership role. Do you think that it required a mindset shift or was it kind of like, I'm just going to treat this like one of, uh, one of our, our clients that we worked with? I've found for myself, if I have a very set path in mind of, of something I want to go do, it doesn't end up being as successful as if I'm just open to what possibilities might come. And so the I knew I wanted to try in-house, but I didn't know if I was now making a full career shift to in-house, if I was just going to experiment with it and end up back at agency, if it was a short-term thing. I just wanted to, I knew at that point, I, I wanted to see what that perspective was like and how that dynamic fit me and what I wanted to do. And you find out pretty quickly if that's a match or not in a lot of things. And so for me, it was really a match. I was I was ready for, we all have Plantronics on our business card. That's all we work on as opposed to, you know, I just come out of Ogilvy where Sun Microsystems was our largest customer. Yeah. I spent three out of five days a week down at Sun Microsystems. So I, I felt like I was more of a Sun employee than an Ogilvy one, but yeah. I wasn't really. So um, yeah, it does take a mentality shift of, are you ready? Because you go from on the agency side, everybody speaks marketing you go in-house and anywhere from four to eight to 10% of the company may speak marketing and you have to become fluent in engineering and you got to come fluent in legal and product development and a lot of different things, which to me was very exciting, but I know it also sends a lot of people back into the agency world because they like that camaraderie of we're all marketing professionals. How did you go about that? I mean, what was, you know, not, I don't know if you can recall your first 90 days or anything, but what was it like to have to kind of like network your way into the company, you know, especially when you hadn't been an operator in a long time? Yeah, it was interesting in that I was also making a major shift as we were talking about before we came on air. I lived in Oakland, but Plantronics is in Santa Cruz. So I was doing this crazy commute and uh, shift in location. And then I was also trying to find a place to live. And I was also trying to settle into a new job and I was trying to understand the dynamics. So I had to just go a hundred percent into sponge mode or be as flexible as possible because everything was changing in my life in terms of all of that. But that was the exciting part for me. So they were all new things for me to learn and be exposed to. I had left the agency side where I was running two offices and I had had a practice. I ran the technology practice. I'd run major accounts. I kind of had a, a bunch of different roles there and there were not nearly as many new things to learn. I could have learned a new client's business and all the players there, but this was something you know totally disruptive to that, which was really exciting to me at the time. One of the things that our, our listeners might not know about Plantronics, but uh, I had the opportunity to go and work with Plantronics a number of years ago and go to the headquarters and hang out there. And there's all this really, really cool space stuff because Plantronics is one of the most innovative 
technologies ever at the time back, you know, over 50 years ago. Can you explain like what was that like and what was kind of this uh, this rich history that the company had when you got there? Sure. So, you know, obviously the common thread that we're going to talk about is attraction to and desire to tell really interesting stories. And for me, when I first got the opportunity to interview at Plantronics, I thought, well, one, it's in Santa Cruz and I'm in Oakland. That's way too far. But two, I, I just didn't I didn't know much about them. I knew they were like, they're a headset maker. Okay. And then I got down there and I started interviewing with the team and learning more about the company. And I, I came out of it kind of shocked given all the different stories that get thrown at us every day, many of which are a very minimal value or, you know, have very little history behind them. I thought, how do I not know that a Plantronics headset was worn by Neil Armstrong when he said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. How do I not know that? And how do I not know that it came out of this NASA heritage? If you had to make products that succeeded in that kind of environment, then it moved into uh, emergency dispatch and all kinds of other mission critical roles, and then into the office and then to the consumer world and had all this great story behind it about the development process, the wall of ears and how they do the ergonomic design for uh, a product that is really about audio quality, but if it's painful in your ear after five minutes, it doesn't matter what the audio quality is because you're going to take it out. So there was so much richness there in the story to peel back um, that along with the team that I met and you know the facets of that, that, that's what really drew me to the company at the time. And I think you know not every single brand has that advantage of you know an over 50 year history and one of the most famous sayings in the history of mankind was said through a Planetronics headset. But we all do have those stories. And every company has unique stories that they want to tell. And I think that the best marketers are the ones who can authentically bring those stories to life. One of the things when I was there, when you talk about the wall of years, I mean, I saw it was this is a kind of creepy and funny little anecdote. But when I was there, we were looking through these drawers, like drawer after drawer after drawer of these ear molds of mm -hmm. people's ears and their employees at Plantronics because, you know, who better to test on than the employees themselves, right? Who better to get the molds from? And one of the ladies in the meeting that I had later on that day, I was like, hey, I saw your ear earlier because she had a really unique name. And she was like, that's weird. Um, you but, didn't recognize her ear. Okay, that's good. I thought that's right. Yeah, that yeah. But it's these type of like little idiosyncrasies, these little things that make your company so unique and special and interesting that we don't necessarily tell those stories all the time and we don't and we definitely don't necessarily market those all the time. Yeah. And when you're a company like a Plantronics, we're using this, you know, as an example of of whatever, you know, your company is that you're listening, that there's things that you do internally that might be proprietary and then there's stuff that might not be proprietary that people would be interested to know. And when you're an expert at sound, you need to be an expert at ears and you need to be an expert at like mouths and breathing and all this stuff. And I think that that's something that isn't commonplace or isn't always talked about. Yeah, no, I think it's true. It's true. And but the interesting one of the interesting things to me as well is that you have to be you can't prioritize story over everything, you know, so that's the part about being within businesses. It's not just an artistic pursuit where story rules and you can just choose the most interesting, the most compelling, unique story in business. You have to you have to think about audience reaction and you have to think about implications and a number of different factors. So the wall of ears, for example, the process that you go through to get an ear mold made is kind of weird looking you know yeah. you basically lay on your your side and you get paste 
poured into your ear and all caked in there and a mold's made and you know and you you watch it uh, and you get like ear hairs and all kinds of things are being messed with it's not everybody's favorite body part to watch getting manipulated and there was always a desire to really tell that story and so we had a lot of discussions about okay well maybe this one's best for print and talking about it's it's importance in our design process because when we then go shoot footage it brings in a little a factor to it. I've seen them do it more now, um, maybe partially after I left because I thought it was a little weird to, to pursue, but you have to think about a lot of different variables and how different members of the audience will react to different parts of the story, the way they'll see it, anticipate that. But yeah, the, the fact that you have those and getting to choose how you want to emphasize or play it more lightly, those are the really interesting companies to work for. Yeah. And it's hard to market something that's 7% better than competitors or potentially 1% better than your competitors or 0.1%. But you're if you're in a technology or a field or non-technology or whatever, where 0.1% could mean hundreds of human lives a year. If you're in healthcare, for example, it could mean massive differences. Like those things, you need to have some type of story wrapped around this for like why it actually matters. And I think a lot of times we just kind of fail to do that. Have you, you know, you are an expert storyteller. You have been involved in multiple different organizations around, you know, story design, how to tell authentic stories. What are some of your best practices? What are some of the things, the ways that you structure stories and craft them to be remembered and exceptional? Well, I should probably start by telling you a little bit more about the the unique path I took. So it makes sense why I emphasize certain things. Um, while I was at Plantronics, I took up an interest in screenwriting. I had tried different forms of writing because I always enjoyed writing and tried writing a novel, not a great success in, earlier in my career, but I really was interested in screenwriting. And when I had written the novel, I had some feedback that said, you know, the parts of your writing where you seem to really excel are in the interplay between characters and this economical efficient style of writing, which screenplay, uh, screenwriting demands. Yep. So I started to pursue it on the side while I was at Plantronics and I wrote a script and I sent it into the Nickel Fellowship, which is the Academy of Arts and Sciences that puts on the Oscars. That's their annual screenwriting competition. And at the time, they got 7,000 entries and they uh, selected five fellows each year. This is not, story's not ending with me being one of the five fellows, but <laughs> but I did. It, it ends with you creating a new technology for screenwriting because what they had at the time exactly. was horrible. That's right. If exactly. anyone out there, any of our listeners has ever, because I've done the same thing and you're just like, this is horrible. Yeah. This is the worst user experience I've ever had. It's like, this is hard enough. And now I have to do learn all these rules and learn all this stuff. But anyway, that's right. Or if you've used screenplay software, which is starting to inch its way a little bit better, but also is in need of some technical genius to come in and up level it. 10 but, years ago, it was not. I can yeah, tell you that much. It's true. So I got my rejection letter from the Nickel Fellowship, but I had this, this one little sentence at the bottom that ended up changing the trajectory of things for me a bit. And it was just a PS right below. They had told me very succinctly, we appreciate your entry, but it's not one of them. It said, PS, your script placed in the top 10%. And I went, okay, they got 7,000 entries. I was somewhere because the top 5% moved to the next round. So I was somewhere between 350th and 700th place. And I was like, I did this, you know, five to eight in the morning before the kids got up kind of on the side. Maybe I could 
knowing how hard it is to try to do this, maybe I could try to pursue it with more time and more dedication and see what came of it. So, so when I left Plantronics, I went and did a couple other interviews and kind of had a visceral reaction of, I'm not ready to just go jump into another job. And so I spent a year and a half studying screenwriting and writing scripts and meeting with different people in the industry and trying to see if I could turn that into a career path. So my, my self-funded fellowship eventually ran out. You won. I you did. won the Clay, I did. You won the Clay Hausman fellowship. I, I did. And I also came in last. So I was, <laughs> depending on how you want to look at it. So uh, I did win that. And Wait, I, what was the screenplay? What was your first one? Uh, so the first one was a story about two brothers. One was a famous rock musician that was on the back half of his career. That was the younger brother. And the older brother was a former athlete, but now is just a traveling salesman and consultant. And they were on these very parallel paths in their mid forties, but they had all the sibling rivalry that they never spoke to one another about it and never understood that they were living very parallel lives, but their ego and all kinds of things present, prevented them from sharing that. And then something happens that kind of blows up their lives together and, and what it does to the two of them. So it was sort of this family drama. I was about that age at the time. So I was kind of hitting that point where a lot of us get to their early forties and think, okay, I'm now, I'm pretty entrenched in what my life path is now. Do I like it? Do I want to change it? Do I want to radically disrupt it? You know, you start thinking about the back half as opposed to the front half. And so that's what that story was about. Then I went and wrote a couple other scripts. One was a comedy, one was a psychological thriller. And I wasn't trying to, you know, show that I was a diverse writer. I literally just, you get so many different ideas and you have to pick which one of these ideas do A, I feel qualified to tell, B, do I think there's going to be um, a financial interest in it? Because that's the difference between writing a screenplay and writing a book. You can't self, I mean, you can self-publish a screenplay, but it's it's not going to become a movie until you convince somebody with funding to turn it into a film. And so you always have to have that commercial viability in mind, which helped me when I came back to, to business, that marriage of art and commerce. So I spent you know a year and a half doing all of that and came to the end of it and said, I need to go back into the working world. But you know what I think I want to do? I think I've totally changed my perspective on how narratives should be told for brands, not just for films. And all the things that I learned on the agency side are built mostly with the agency billable hour in mind, as opposed to the the end product for an audience and efficiency and yeah, story quality. Yeah, I uh, I've heard that a lot. Shout out to our friends in the agency world who are doing great work. <laughs> and I will say there are a lot of super talented people in agencies doing great work. It's the model more than the people that need some reinvention. Oh, 100%. I mean, we talk about this all the time at at Mission is that journalists didn't get worse. Writers didn't get worse. And yet they're being fired right and left or laid off right and left. 15% of the workforce you know, being let off. These people aren't less talented. They didn't all of a sudden fall off a cliff. It's just the business model that was associated with how we funded them is fundamentally broken and was disrupted by technology and con- continues to be so. And so it's a sad state of affairs, but I think that there's something very, very similar going on with agencies right now where, you know, what is the right size of an agency? What are the different sizes that make sense for agencies? And we could do an entire podcast on that, but, you know, to your self-discovery there was 
how do we drive the bottom line for the listener or the reader or the person consuming this story in a way that helps them improve their life in some way? And then how do we drive business results from that? Not how do we, you know, figure out how to build the most amount, right? It's like, it's like if you go to physical therapy, they'll pay for 20 sessions, right? It's like, how many do you think if it's a private private PT clinic, how many do you think they're billing? They're billing 20. If your knee pain is gone at 10, they're billing 20, right? That's right. So, um, you know, sometimes I think you just got to follow the business model and just say, if this is what you get paid off of, that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Well, it's hard. Like it was when I, so I, I started a consulting business around using the toolkit of the screenwriter to help companies craft better brand narratives and better brand strategy that was done in a narrative structure and in a narrative language, because that's ultimately what your marketers and your salespeople and your HR people, they're all going to speak in story language. It's the way we communicate with one another. So don't make them translate a PowerPoint deck written in strategy voice into what they're ultimately going to use at the end of the day and make it as concise as possible because the best stories are the super tight, compelling, keep you on the edge of your seat the whole time stories, not the long meandering, occasionally it says something interesting stories. But that is disruptive because even when I was in the consulting world, I would explain to prospective clients, so at the end of the day, you're going to get a single sheet and it's going to distill these elements of your brand story structure. And this is what we're then going to go do with it. And they would say, wait, wait, hold on. I'm I'm just going to get a single sheet, just one sheet. And I'm like, well, yeah, you are, but understand the things that we have to do and all the background materials. You'll have some rationale materials and all kinds of background that will justify what is on that single sheet. But what we ultimately want to use to educate people in the company, to how to adhere to the brand story, that's gonna be really concise. And we need that to be concise and compelling. We don't wanna give them a 102 slide PowerPoint deck. There is no, I know it feels like a great accomplishment to the person who creates the 102 slides, but it's really not. It's, it's if you can take that and distill it down to something that conveys all the strength of that, but really succinctly, that's what's going to have value for people. That was hard for people to understand. Like the output at the end of the day is, is just this single sheet and these tools and a workshop. And you're like, yeah. And other people would really get it. And those were the, those were the fun ones to work with. Yeah. And I, let me actually just look this up. So I think it's Mark Twain. Um, yeah. Well, it's been, it's, it's been ascribed to a number of people. Yeah, but he's yeah. the most common. I mean, so I love the quote and I spent some time looking into it. It's like, I'm sorry, this letter is so long. I didn't have time to make it shorter. Yeah, exactly. Which it's right? been assigned to a, a couple of different French people. Mark Twain is the most common. So I, I use Mark Twain too. But yeah, I love that because it's, there's so much truth in that. So much truth. Yeah. I mean, and you look at any type of story. That's what's so brilliant about like JK Rowling and Harry Potter, right? Is she took every single thing about writing a children's story and turned it on its head. It's like everyone told her like, can't write a long story. You can't do this. You can't do that. You know, you can't write an 800 page kid's book. And she's like, don't believe me, just watch. Right. Um, but that's one of those things like memento, right? Number one rule of screenwriting is like, do not mess with, do not go backwards. Right. Don't mess uh, with the timeline. Yeah. yeah. It's like literally one of the number one rules. And uh, there's a reason why Memento is like one of the only <laughs> movies that has ever been made to be able to do that. But these rules are made for a reason. And I think that a lot of people want to break screenwriting rules or just not look them up or not look up these methodologies, even though they're 
you know, proven over time storytelling models that we have used as humans for 2000 years to remember stuff. Like everyone's like, well, there's listicles. And I'm like, well, there's a really good listicle. It's called the 10 commandments and it's lasted for 2000 years. There's a reason why humans are hardwired to remember stories, to remember lists, to remember things in a certain way. And I think people kind of sometimes just forget that these things are very valuable, you know, mental models or tools that can help you tell these stories. That's right. Yeah. And what I was saying earlier about, you know, the the story structure and starting to think in those terms as early on as possible in the strategy process, as far upstream into business strategy, brand strategy is essential because again, it is the way that we naturally converse with one another. And it also forces you to think about the very compelling and unique parts of what you're your company story, your brand story is going to be. So two examples. One, there's a a term in screenwriting called the inciting incident. And it basically is the moment, it's one of these things back to your model, storytelling models uh, point. It exists in every film you've ever seen. And as soon as you learn about it, you kind of sit there and wait. It usually happens somewhere in the first 12 minutes of every movie you've ever seen. And it's what after we've been introduced to the setting and some characters, it is something that happens that disrupts the status quo and sends the story off in its course and sets up the next 120 minutes, roughly speaking. And there there can be, and there typically is, a moment like that for every business, especially startups. Startups, it's typically the founder's story. What motivated you to spend all of your life or all of your waking hours building this business? Why should people come work here and spend most of their waking hours working on it? So you want something that you can rally around that incited the desire to create this company. For bigger companies, and Octana, where I'm working now, it's more of a strategy shift and an awakening and a moment that you had with a customer where you go, wait a minute, our way of thinking about this is totally wrong. Let's do it actually this way. And then it, it sets you off on the growth trajectory of your company. Understanding what that is, is a really critical thing for motivation and inspiration, but also for reminding yourself what your brand should be rooted in, because that thing that motivated you to do it in the first place should remain at the core of what you're, what you're building and what you're making in the future. It's brilliant advice and a really smart way to position your company. And I would add to that, that in, in and amongst that first 12 minutes, there is the save the cat moment, which is... Uh, gosh, who wrote Save the Cat? Yeah, I forget it. I forget yeah, it. I've head. got the book. Cats, um, yeah. But this moment where it's like that character, whoever it is, the main character, that they do something, he uses the term um, Save the Cat, which yeah. is there's a reason why this person is endearing to the listener or the reader or the viewer is that this person's a good person. They would save the cat in the tree if they were walking by. And a lot of people just kind of miss that opportunity as a brand is they get to the inciting part sometimes of why this technology needs to change, but they forget. And they, maybe they talk about like why these people are so capable to solve the problem, why the founding team or this company is so capable, but they don't ever endear themselves to the listener or the reader. And that's the big problem is like, look at like Mark Zuckerberg, for example, that whole social network was a giant thing about endearing us to this person who, oh, you know, I was going through all this stuff and it's just, I was trying to do all this stuff. Now he gets, you know, crushed every two seconds, but there's, he was extremely popular 
for a long time because of things like that movie where they were showing these human elements of how he just wanted to, yes, he was brilliant. Yes. All these things, but like, he just wanted to do this to connect people and all that stuff. That's, there was a lot of save the cat moments in that movie. And I think a lot of people just kind of miss that element of, yeah, you might not think that your company needs to be likable, but if you were walking by, you know, the cat in the tree, are you actually going to, are you going to save it? Or are you the type of company who just walks by? And I think for a lot of companies with negative imagery right now, people think that they would just walk by or cut down the tree. Yeah, true. Well, and the other thing you're bringing up is that that's meant to endear you to a character, typically the lead character. So that's the person you're going to be connected to throughout that story. That's another element out of the screenwriter's toolkit, probably one of the two or three biggest ones that I took from that experience to say, okay, well, the same way that characters are what really make a film that you love unique. When you think about a film that you love, you're thinking about the different characters that you connected to in it. You don't often talk about, other than a story like Memento, where the plot structure and the timeline is such a unique element that that's what you remember. Most times you're remembering the characters, you're remembering Jack Nicholson in The Shining, or you're remembering Han Solo or Darth Vader, or whoever, the individuals that you connected to, those characters and what made them so rich and unique. So the, the, the movie that I use as an example quite often is Die Hard, partially because it's one of my favorites, but also... A Christmas movie. It, well, so that's one of the things, yeah. They, they, it was just a typical action-adventure movie in the 80s when a lot of it was Sly Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Steven Seagal. Like, um, I think of it as like the guns and grunts era where there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue. There was a lot of shooting and there's yeah. a lot of shirts that were barely on, barely off. And but they First Blood is a phenomenal movie. I just want that to be on record that it is not that type of movie. It is a little bit, but there's a lot of soul in in First Blood. It's essentially about a guy who has PTSD. It's super deep. But anyway, sorry. That's true. Wow, it's, we could go off this yeah, we're no. gonna do in addition to the agency podcast, we'll do a film podcast. Yeah, as well, we should because be I have fun. yeah. Um, um but, but Die Hard. But Die Hard, yeah. So they, you know, the protagonist of that film, it's a regular New York City cop who's screwing up his marriage, not particularly muscle bound, just an average guy. The women in those films typically were all the damsel in distress that need to be rescued and saved and were screaming and didn't have a whole lot of a role. But this was his separated wife, Miss Holly Gennaro, who ends up taking on the head of the terrorists quite directly. Oh, she's great. So she's fantastic. Hans Gruber, the villain, my favorite character in the film, they gave him almost the exact same amount of screen time as Bruce Willis, which is unheard of. The, The villain doesn't get the same amount of screen time as the hero, but they did in that film, made it. And then the part you mentioned, the Christmas movie, they they made setting a character in the film. So we're going to set it at Christmas time. So we've got this juxtaposition between the violence of the terrorist scene with the joy of the holiday season and and how they could play off that. And so those were all unique characters that allowed it to become this massive hit. And so as I have thought about when I worked with companies or when I'm at my current company, Octana, what are the characters or the characteristics that are truly unique and we are qualified to represent? So I'll, I'll use Octana as an example. The inciting incident for us, we are a, a decision support company in the life sciences industry, which basically means we help pharma and med device companies take all the data and analytic sources they've invested in. We have an engine and a platform that synthesizes all of that and just produces very actionable, helpful suggestions and insights to their commercial teams, their sales and marketing people. So they can support their customers, the doctors, better and doctors will get information that they need faster and patients will get the care that they need more effectively. 
we learned early on being an AI and machine learning and analytics company, oh, we thought it was all about the algorithms and the tech, like a lot of tech startups. And we had an early wake-up call that it is not about the algorithms. It is about the human element of it because we are going to have human users who believe that they are the experts in their field, whether they are marketers or salespeople out in the field. And we needed to respect and appreciate that part and bring that into our process. So that awakening that it wasn't about the tech, it was about the human side and the marriage of AI and human intelligence and how they coexist just changed the trajectory of what we were doing, how we designed the platform, how we emphasize parts of our process, bringing reps all the way up into the strategy and design phase early on so yeah. that they would be advocates later on. They would help make the modeling better. And so if I think about the characters that are unique to us, we pride ourselves on having a human-centric approach to AI in everything that we do. So as I mentioned, from our, our training and workshop processes, from our strategy design, rep advisory boards and ride-alongs, all sorts of things that we say, we're always going to make sure that we are not an AI company in love with the tech, but we are going to be this blend of an augmented approach and how it works. And that becomes rooted as a character in our story. We are exclusive to life sciences. We don't work with any other industry. And that is a character in our story because it's a really complicated, unique industry. You have to know it inside and out. And if we were trying to sell to financial services and e-commerce and other industries, we wouldn't be as qualified to support uh, life science companies with their unique needs as the way we are. So that becomes a character in our story. And we tell people, no matter the temptation right now, we are purely life sciences. And if you have those things, they become both strategic elements, but they're also story elements and they become one and the same. So how do you position, I mean, this is a lot about positioning the company. How do you position the company within advertising, within marketing, within the different things that you're doing as a company to get this story out there? Like, so you, it seems like you've developed a framework for how the company is talked about internally and how you want it talked about externally, but then you got to distribute that. You got to get it out there. How are you, how do you look at that stuff? So by focusing on such a specific community of customers, and we are the ultimate in ABM, everybody's favorite term now. Oh yeah, totally, yeah. Um, we, we are the ultimate because we, ult we, we support the top 50 pharmaceutical companies in the world and the top 20 or 30 medical device companies because just the nature of what we offer, it fits that size of company with a lot of complexity and silos between marketing and sales, a large brand portfolio that they need to support. They're different elements, but as a result, that's all we focus on. And this is where the machine learning and the hyper-targeting and the personalization comes in that we can use a tool like LinkedIn to focus campaigns specifically at those 70 companies. We can go to events that are purely life sciences and not life sciences in general, but life sciences on the commercial side because we don't support the R&D side. So we're able to hyper tar target and hyper segment this industry, which as I've learned is the smallest, largest industry I've ever worked with oh, yeah. in that these are massive, massive companies, a huge industry. And yet these people have all worked in the, you see the same people at all the same events. They've all worked with one another. They've all kind of crossed over and traded jobs and done different things. So it's a very tight community. And it's important that we have that credibility of, okay, as I said, our exclusivity on this industry, when we go, we're not distracted by anything other than your business problems. That's all we focus on. And they have respect for that because that's what they're exclusively focused on as well.
have you thought of it like you know a book launch or something like that or or you know or a movie launch where it's like okay we got everything down we know exactly what what we're trying to do the story that we're trying to tell how do we get this into you know other people's lives in a way that's meaningful a bit yeah and especially given the audience that we're selling to our our sales process is quite a long one you're talking about very big complex organizations so it's a bit like bringing a movie to the market you have a lot of moving parts a lot of stages of development a lot of stages of nurturing and um yeah there are there are elements there that i would say parallel that and it's not a just classic funnel cone-shaped funnel that oh you just come in the top and then you you know matriculate down it's it's like basically just things are you're constantly going like up and down in this funnel yeah our the the sales funnel for our our company is it is a, a bit of a complex one because there are a lot of different influencers in our sales process so we ultimately sell typically to a brand and they are the, they house the the strategy and we support their strategy but we're equipping salespeople, so we need sales and sales operations on board we are a new technology so we need it engaged and we do a lot with analytics so you need the in-house analytics person so all these people need to come together and say this is something that we need and right now it's really a transformational thing because in life sciences they've had a legacy model for how they go to market it's had a lot to do with the rep visiting the doctor and trying to impress upon them whatever the message is and it's been the marketer once or twice a year telling the field what they ought to do and what the messaging strategy is and we're disrupting that whole process for the good we have a number of of customers one novartis has been very public about their move towards remaking their whole operational model and corporate culture around AI and machine learning and a data-oriented approach. And there is a lot that's shifting. But when those plates shift in an industry as big as life sciences, there are a lot of people that you have to bring to the table and make sure that they appreciate and respect the value that you can bring to them. What best practices or, or lessons learned are you seeing from the field of how people are leveraging AI to help with marketing, to help with sales, to help give people this information, this data that is so hard to kind of get out of the ether? I think the, there are two, two things. One that is pretty well established at this point, which is around segmentation, micro segmentation, even down to personalization of one. And these are all the things that we've experienced as consumers when you get fed your recommendations through Netflix or you get your shopping history and new recommendations through Amazon, all these things that are learning your personal, not you know, a, a male of this age and this location in the country and this earning power, but literally down to you and your personal behaviors and preferences and the way that you like to consume information that is where there's so much value and i think that's pretty well established the one that marketers are still going to have to grapple with continually is that in our industry ai comes with a, a fine line between the good and evil in terms yeah. of what ai can do so there is helpful personalization in ai that can quickly move to invasive personalization in ai and this is where i think there will always be a balance between human expertise and machine expertise in that if there is a rule or a law or some piece, uh, uh, some hard 
element in place, then a machine can do all sorts of things incredibly quickly in a multifaceted way. But if it requires judgment or empathy or consideration or nuance, these are things that a machine is not, at least today, able to do very effectively and will always be led by the the human side of the equation. And that's a really critical one because as much as we like to think that what we produce is just a gift to any member of the audience that we reach, there are a lot of times we've all experienced invasive marketing that's gone too far or you can tell that it was produced by a machine that doesn't really know anything other than you hit a website seven times. But maybe it's not capturing the right data. It doesn't know that you actually bought those pair of shoes, but it's still marketing and advertising those shoes to you two months later. So... How, and we and we yeah. don't get upset when we see the ad on TV, right? Mm-hmm. When you already have the, you know, whatever, pair of Nikes or whatever it is, and you see the ad on TV, you're like, whatever. When you see the ad 55 times, you're like, I already own those shoes. <laughs> well, know? and but that's based on the personalization part. Like if yeah. I knew the ad I saw on TV was just coming to my television based on something they saw me do in my living room, uh, you bet. Most people well, are I like, hope they can't see into you. Yeah. <laughs> but, they, but you'd say, well, there is. I mean, the browser can give you a very similar window into your behavior Absolutely. of your, your virtual self. So if the ads coming through your television were that kind of targeting, then you'd get all that same sort of blend between, oh, that was really helpful. I am looking to take a, vac- a vacation to Florida. And now they're giving me information versus... I won't go into detail, but something that you may not want to have presented to you that's reflecting your behavior of some kind or is getting a little bit too knowledgeable. And there is that privacy element that's going to be really important for marketers to understand where that line is for your audience. And our audience, you know, the the healthcare and life sciences industry, that you have to be really rigid about that, really careful about it. But even in a consumer world where there aren't those kinds of regulations in place, you have to be smart about it too if you want to build the right relationship. So with the rise of artificial intelligence, we have so much data, we have so much information. Some folks at times kind of say that the storytelling elements might be the uh, you know softer sciences or the more artistic kind of version of this stuff. How do you put that type of rigor or that type of thoughtfulness around your storytelling so that you can leverage things like data and AI to help make those decisions? Like what should... Um, you know, for the CMOs or, or marketers listening, how should they look at positioning their company and telling their story in an effective way? So there's a, a quote that I came across by uh, from Robert Altman, who said that I don't think screenwriting is actually writing. I think it's I think it's blueprinting, and that was really my experience with it in that you had to fit a certain construct you had to stay within certain boundaries you had to think about the commercial output at the end you couldn't just write a story and you couldn't say well this time it's 150 pages the next time it's 800 pages all scripts are somewhere around 120 pages because it's a page per minute of screen time and so if you take that approach to story development as it pertains to strategy from a blueprinting standpoint or an architectural standpoint, a construct, you remove that softer side of, oh, it's telling a story around a campfire, and you think of it more as a design process. And then it's already in a language that allows you to communicate it to all the different people in your company who are going to be the quote unquote storytellers beyond marketing. Think of recruiting right now. Recruiting is the most challenging thing to do in many parts of the country, especially Silicon Valley. And Every employee of yours is asked, why should I come work there? What's appealing? How do I bring you, you know, how do I, why do I want to come join that company? And you need to equip them in 
a narrative way, not with a set of bullets on a PowerPoint slide. So I, I just would encourage people to really challenge their strategy development and strategy communication process to think of it in a story construct from the very beginning. Even as you communicate with the rest of your C-suite, try to chip away at that. It's the softer side and think of it more as a very rigorous process because it'll help you communicate it seamlessly when you need to go do that. Are there any particular like resources or books that you found super helpful when you were doing your research? So if you have an interest in the screenwriting side, uh, I mean, there's a book called Story by Robert McKee, yeah. which gets into all kinds of screenwriting. Anybody who's had an interest in screenwriting has read it or attended one of his classes at some point in time. He talks a lot Acquired about- Acquired reading admission. Yeah, exactly. It gets a little bit into the deep detail of screenwriting, but there are lots of parallels that I pulled out of it. There are lots of interesting business books like, you know, Daniel Pink was in his book, A Whole New Mind, was talking about this rise of the right brainers. I think it was 14, 15 years ago when he yeah. wrote that book. And that was all about, they're going to be parts of our work that machines are much more qualified to do. It's the empathetic story development part. If you Google, there's some guy, and I can't remember who did it, but if you Google machine written screenplay, like they had oh my somebody, they had a, so a machine funny. write a screenplay, try, you know, and they had ingested- I don't know if those are real or if no, they're was, not. This one was so legit. funny. So it, it had ingested all these scripts and all these books and everything and was trying to write a script based on the formulas and and you read it and it's, it's hilarious. It's really entertaining, uh, but it shows you if- if a machine had to go and incorporate all of these elements that make something a compelling narrative, it really gives you confidence in what the uh, human side of the equation is well qualified to do. Well, what's really funny about that stuff is this is like a classic AI sort of a thing, which is how did we train? It's by the way, it's called Sunspring. How did we train that? machine to write those screenplays by feeding it human written screenplays that's right. right it's like when people say that uh you know say that capitalism is worthless or something like that and it's like we should use all this money for other stuff it's like wait but all of this money was made through capitalism so you can't have one without the other right it's like this idea of you can't make a screenplay unless it's learning from human behavior unless it's learning from things that humans have written. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that the robots are never going to replace us. They're just going to replace the uh, the mundane things that we don't want to do. Yeah. Um, do that's, you think- That's our hope. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, until, yeah. until, until it's not the case. That's right. Um, final question on that. Do you think that there is a, you know, that one phrase or sentence like you, you know i know founder institute does one thing of like our company helps blank to do blank so that blank or like the hero's journey style of a person was who was blank went on their way to do blank like do you do you recommend that people look at that as like a framework or something that early on that they need to add a minimum put their company into this into these terms I, I would recommend that you think about i mean this is where the, what the mission statement or the vision statement is by definition, supposed to do for a rallying statement and an articulation of what a company is here to do. It has been vehemently abused over the years to become a very self-serving or groupthink written sentence that doesn't really achieve what it's meant to do. So to mention the book earlier story by Robert McKee, he has a term in there called the controlling idea. And that's something that I brought over into the brand development to sort of replace the definition of a mission statement. So it's like, how does, how do you make 
your audience's life better from before they had your product or brand to after. Like think of your reason for being, your mission statement in that context. Not what you want to accomplish, not we want to be the largest company selling educational software in the United States. Like that's a very, that's not a, a greater good kind of mission statement, but that's what a lot of mission statements look like. Yeah, you're right. His is not, his controlling idea was not what literally happens in the story. That's a plot summary. The controlling idea is sort of the North Star as you're writing a script for six to 12 to 18 months. What is the point that you're trying to make? What's the message you want to convey? What's the takeaway for the audience? What's this theme here? And I think there's a lot of power in thinking about your company or your brand's reason for being in that setting. How does it make your audience's life better from before they had your product or brand? to after and because it always puts you in the customer lens that way or through the customer lens and i'll add it i'll add something to this if you figure out that let's say you have five characters in your vision statement in this mission statement in your story in your company story in your marketing those characters should be used right like those are the other stories yeah like if data is a character in your story you should be telling stories about data if you know human centric ai is one of the characters in your story you should be using that you know if it's your founders if it's whatever you know whatever it is i mean you look at like papa john right who is in a lot of legal problems now but you know his name's on the box he was always at the forefront of all their marketing um you look at like you know tom shane from shane company like all sorts of people who put their founders into this that character always was in those stories so it doesn't necessarily need to be your founding team or your CEO or whatever right. it is, but the characters that are in your company story need to be in your marketing messaging because you are evangelizing for those things, the future that you believe that your customers are going to be part of. And you need to be, I mean, quite often it's not the individual, the, the character term in brand building for companies is more accurately attributes or strengths. Because when we say characters, we start thinking of individuals, of people like, well, will it be my founder? Will it be my CEO? They're really your strengths and attributes. So, But the thing you have to do is be hyper self-critical about whether they really are your unique characters or characteristics. There are a lot of companies who create what they think the market wants to hear or where there's a gap in the competitive set. And they go, well, we'll, we'll do that. We'll be that. Everybody wants simple. They like simplicity. We're tech companies. So if you can be simple, then more people are going to be able to buy your product. But they don't, they're not self-critical to say, well, if we really want to have simplicity to be one of our characteristics, have we invested in UI design the way we need to? Do we have simple ways of getting in touch with us when somebody has a support issue? Like, Is simplicity permeating our culture and our resource decisions? Because tech companies by nature are not simple. They are filled with very intelligent, technical people. So if you want simplicity to be a character, you've got to do so many things to follow through on that. And if you don't, your customer audience is going to tell you immediately and then your brand loses strength right off the bat. I mean, that's like Netflix from the very beginning was like storytelling and technology. They wanted to have both of those two things. They wanted stories that were enabled by really good technology once they you know, built their platform. And Reed Hastings has talked about that at length, right? Things like that where you look at the people who are, and we've done a bunch of episodes on category creation. It's the same sort of thing. Like what is the category that you're creating? And then what are the things that your company does to enable you know, your customer success? Yeah. Let's get into lightning round. Fast and easy questions that you've never heard before. Stuff you have no idea what's coming, but you know that they're going to be fast and easy. Not unlike Pardot, our good friends at Pardot. 
lightning round. It's fast and easy, just like B2B marketing with Pardot. We love them. You will too. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Oh, of course, the podcast app. I mean, do I, do I say anything There you else? go, right? <laughs> do you have a favorite one-day getaway in the Bay Area? Uh, Tahoe to go skiing. It's a little bit more than one day, but yeah, it's my favorite Some people day. do it in one day. I do it. If I can't, or I call it a 24-hour getaway, so I may go up the night before, ski, come back the next day. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? So the two podcasts, they're not that original, but I go in and out of binging on how I built this. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. It's wanting great. to always listen to that. And then I'm a sports fan, so I, I geek out on uh, on NFL draft stuff, I have to admit. I did go to the NFL draft when I was like 12 years old before it became a thing. Did you? That's I pretty did. great. My brother and I, yeah, in our jerseys looking like the nerds we were. Who's your favorite team? Boy, you're gonna, I'm going to need this edited out too. I'm a Miami Dolphins fan. Oh, that's... Yeah. Can't walk too tall these days. It's rough. At least it's not, you know, the Jets with going to the draft every year and it's like, we want sap. We want sap. <laughs> exactly. It's like, tight end from whatever it was. Kyle that. Brady. Yeah. Penn State. Yeah. What? Yeah. yeah. Worst advice that you got in your career? It's probably from a gentleman who told me not to move to the Bay Area from New York. It was a flash in the pan. There's, it's all happening in New York. It's not really going on in the Bay Area. I, I moved out here. Yeah, worked, worked out pretty good. Yeah. What thing are you most excited about for the future of marketing? I am excited about the emphasis on channels that are going to force the story-driven approach. So as we move from the printed medium to video and audio. Another plug yeah. for you guys. Hey, Cheers. I couldn't agree more. This is great. <laughs> but I, honestly, I mean, those are so significantly on the rise. The ability to publish your own, to have control of your own content, that was one of the biggest barriers. Like, well, I have to go hire an expensive agency to record something or shoot something for me. Now everybody can kind of self-publish that and self-produce. Those require, I mean, you don't, I don't, I've never watched a video where somebody reads a sell sheet to me and I don't think I ever would. So you have to put it into some kind of narrative or cinematic form. I could not agree more. And obviously, you know, that's what we, we do as a company. But I think that the thing that's so interesting is that now companies can be authentic with their communications around things and people who are professional stories can be professional storytellers and the blending of those two things is like truly going to be magical going forward because we've never really had that opportunity to blend high quality storytelling and technology in a way that we have now it's just never really happened in history yeah and this is my plug for my uh my profession for three minutes when i was trying to be a screenwriter the same way that companies have moved towards bringing journalists in-house I would love to see more people pulled from the screenwriting world and the film production world, the documentary filmmaking world, um, not just for a project, but bring them in-house, make them part of your DNA so that people who are really skilled at combining a narrative approach, the commercial needs of that narrative approach, and making something cinematic get into marketing. Because journalists are great at it, but it's a, it's a different kind of beast when you bring in somebody 
who has to think of the commercial aspects, but still be cinematic. And so there just there were a lot of people that I I met and worked with, and even in, when I was more heavily doing the consulting, which I still do, but not nearly as much. You know, I was talking to different screenwriters on Big Bang Theory and the writer of Source Code and others, where we would come in and do workshops, or we would help companies using their unique skills and traits, and they have a lot of them. A lot of them. I couldn't agree more. And it's really exciting because I think that the future is not going to be either or. It's like both and, right? It's like having a journalist on your marketing team and having a storyteller on your team. It's two different things. It's like two completely different skill sets, two different personalities, and two different problem sets because people want both. And that's what's so exciting about it. Final question. What is your best advice for a first-time CMO? My best advice for a first-time CMO would be to understand your peers as well as you possibly can in terms of what their pressures are, what they need from marketing, what their conversation with the CEO is like so you can be an effective partner to them. And that was a, a learning curve for me when I came out of the agency world, but understanding the CFO's perspective, understanding regional heads, the head of product, the CTO, of course, now with where marketing technology is headed, having a deep appreciation and empathy for what they have to deal with will allow you to be so much more effective in partnership. And then when you do that, I've had jobs as CMO where I get highly distracted by the political aspect. And my job right now, which I really enjoy, we spend so little time on that because there's a great mutual respect and trust among the senior team on what we're each responsible for. We don't spend any time on kingdom building or turf wars. It's about a, a common goal and it's a lot of an appreciation for what we're each trying to do. So I would say to really, really overdo it on understanding your peers and, and what their needs and pressures are. I love it. Clay, we're going to have you back soon. We got a lot, we got a lot, 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 lot more to discuss. We haven't even gotten into movies really very deeply. I, I know, really. I mean, I have so we could do one on Die Hard if you want me to do one on Die I know, Hard. Right? Clearly, so, you can do one on well, First Blood, but. Oh, man. Don't even get me started. I've gotten too many, too many arguments about, uh, about First Blood. People think it's like, dude, this is like, like almost cry every single time I watch First Blood. It's just like a remarkable story. But uh, thanks for hanging out. We'll have you back soon. And uh, it's just really, really great insights about storytelling. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences so you can be a bright spot in someone's day.
head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.